Hello and welcome back to Heights Library's podcast, Unpacking 1619, where you can explore the interviews we've collected with scholars from around the country, in which we unpack topics relating to race in America. I'm your host, John Pichet, and I'm thrilled to share these interviews with you here. Kicking off our five-episode deep dive into the complicated and troubling history of slavery and the North American indigenous population is Margaret Newell, a full professor of history at The Ohio State University. Professor Newell discusses her book, Brethren by Nature, New England Indians, Colonists, and the Origins of American Slavery. Professor Newell explores the enslavement of Indians by the English colonists in New England and how Massachusetts became the first English colony to legalize slavery in 1641. The colonists' desire for slaves shaped major New England Indian wars and focused the conflicts on obtaining captives and slaves. Here we are talking on September 7th, 2022. My name is Margaret Newell and I'm a professor of early American history at Ohio State University. In the past, I've written about economic history and the history of the American Revolution, um, but currently I'm focusing much more on uh, slavery studies. Excellent, thank you. Um, We'll be talking about your book, uh, Brethren by Nature, New England Indians, Colonists, and the Origins of American Slavery. So if you could kind of give us an overview of what the book is and what it hopes to achieve. Well, um, this book got a start as uh, <laughs> it, it split out of some of my earlier research on economic history. And I was reading the records of a merchant, a uh, New England merchant, uh, who you know, sort of looking at consumer, what the consumers wanted and so on. And I found interspersed there his records for when he was treasurer of the colony, um, which happened to be during King Philip's War, which is a big Anglo-Native American war in 1675-76. And these records showed that the colony itself, Massachusetts, had auctioned off Indians in, in you know, family groups, infants, women, children, old, uh, you know, the elderly, young people. And I just hadn't known such a thing had happened. And at that time, the textbooks I was using to teach American history to college students you know, maybe had a one-line reference to Indian slavery in the English colonies. So something that people understood happened in New Spain um, and the colonies of and the Spanish colonies, but people assumed it hadn't really happened in English and French colonies. Uh, African slavery, yes, but not Indian slavery. So I started investigating this question, and, and my researcher went in both directions, uh, backwards from King Philip's War to the early period, to sort of try to figure out when when the English colonists started enslaving Indians and then forward in time to see what sort of what happened um, and why and sort of try to get at why we don't know more about this and why it kind of disappeared from history writing. Um, people knew about it in the 18th century and in the 19th century. So Indian slaves show up as uh, characters in novels in the 19th century, well-known ones that would have been very popular at the time. Um, anti-slavery societies mentioned Native Americans as well as Africans in terms of who they wanted uh, to be free. Um, and even some histories of, of written in the 19th century, about the 17th century, they mentioned Indian slavery. But in the 20th century, this became a kind of forgotten forgotten topic. So all those questions interest me. Yeah, and I guess we could spend some time in a different uh, lecture or a uh, different conversation about why that 
uh, fell out of favor in the 20th century as far as uh, a topic of investigation. But I kind of like to talk um, more about the way the colonies began Indian slavery, because I was very um, interested in your uh, notion of this hybrid system mm -hmm. of uh, both servitude and slavery and how that kind of uh, meshed and what the, it was, it was confusing, I guess, at certain times. Yeah, it was, it was confusing, sometimes intentionally so. Uh, so what I, what I argued, or what I discovered and what I argue is that, um, particularly for the English colonies, they created their, the, they created the law of slavery for the British Empire, whereas uh, French and Spanish colonists uh, could draw on legal codes that were based on Roman law because Southern Europe kind of been part of the Roman Empire. Um, the English had a different legal system that was based less on statute than on court decisions and precedent and so on. And the English system had kind of gotten rid of serfdom and, and these sorts of bound labor systems um, before the period of colonization. So there wasn't a clear playbook. What the English could do is look around and see what other, other nations had done and were doing the Americas. So they're very aware of slavery. Um, enslaved uh, Africans had, you know, were, were present in uh, England in the 1500s. Um, so there, there was awareness and, and in many cases a sort of desire to engage in enslavement. Uh, but um, the initial attitude towards Native Americans on the part of the English was, we're going to do this better than the Spanish. And the Spanish were these, you know, were these evildoers, this black legend of Spanish abuse of Indians. So the English, you know, were in many ways expecting a different kind of relationship with Native Americans, of you know, mutual uh, mutual aid, of um, you know, of the Indians sort of welcoming welcoming the English or trading with them. Um, you know, many thought the Indians had more land than the Native Americans really needed and that, that the English could take this land and so on. I mean, there's, there's lots of other things involved, but I, I don't think initially that the English you know, came in expecting to harness indigenous labor in the way that they actually did. Um, so I, I see uh, it happening um, in early stages of exploration and colonization for the English, that people who are involved in these uh, voyages of exploration, uh, people who are planning colonies, but took Indian captives from Martha's Vineyard, from what is now the coast of Maine, um, from you know, people looking for the Northwest Passage, kidnapped Native Americans from what is now Western Canada and Alaska, and, and brought them back, both to show that they had been to these places, but also because they were valuable assets uh, to companies trying to, to bring colonial expeditions to the Americas. So they were wanted as guides, as map makers, as linguists, you know, just for sources of information. And then they were often sent back to, along with uh, European expeditions. So uh, Squanto, which some of you may have heard of, you know, who helped the pilgrims in uh, 1620 in Plymouth, Massachusetts, Squanto was kidnapped, was trafficked back and forth across the Atlantic, you know, was, was freed and then, you know, recaptured and enslaved again. You know, I mean, these people passed through slave markets in Spain. You know, Squanto, Squanto was all over Europe um, and was finally kind of purchased by um, a man who was interested in spearheading the colonization of what is now Maine. So, uh, you know, many of these Native American, early Native American captives had amazing global experiences. Uh, some of them ended up as 
mercenaries fighting wars in Central Europe. I mean, these are amazing stories. Um, so, uh, but this, these are like relatively small numbers of people and there wasn't a policy around doing this. Um, people actually were aware, in fact, it, it angered local uh, native nations. And one of the reasons why this, you haven't ever heard of this colony in Maine from 1607 is that it failed um, and they, because they had terrible relations with Native Americans. But uh, with the establishment of Massachusetts Bay in 1630, bigger and stronger than the Puritans, a bit bigger and stronger than the Pilgrims in Plymouth, you know, policy towards Native Americans and uh, some of these attitudes started changing. So I, I see a, a Indian enslavement basically coming up during uh, the first really big military conflict between English colonists and Native Americans in New England, and that's uh, the Pequot War. And during this war, the English uh, took captives. And so, so this was a, a war in which Native Americans fought on both sides. So some of them actually joined the English to, to topple a group that had been in control of uh, fur trade on the Connecticut River. So this was this was like a, a war about territory, a war about control of trade um, that a lot of the New England colonists had interest in, as well as other Native American groups. But uh, what happened to the captives is what started distinguishing um, the English and their allies and actually made some of these initial Native American allies of the English really take a step back because the English uh, exported some of these captives to the Caribbean and exchanged them for African slaves. So the Pequot, these enslaved Pequots were actually the, the cargo, part of the cargo that New England, uh, Massachusetts, in a, in a kind of colonial sponsored voyage, they sent a ship to try to initiate trade with the Caribbean and get their economy jump started. And that ship ended up um, exchanging enslaved Pequots for enslaved Africans and brought enslaved Africans back to the colony. But the colony maintained a slave pen. I mean, this was a, a trade and a business. But most of the Indians were not exported out of the colony. They were kept to work in English homes. So people wanted um, help in the home. They wanted women and children to do all the tasks it took to, to feed and clothe and care for uh, families in this period. You think of the home as a little factory where raw materials came in had to be made, you know, had to be processed so the family could wear them, consume them, et cetera. So, so households were, were kind of a big, were the economic base for these colonial societies, not plantations, we're not in that, at that stage yet. Although farming, fishing, warfare, these were all things that, that also uh, people deployed these enslaved Indians in, um, in these other sorts of economic activities. So there's, there's intense demand for Native Americans of all ages, particularly for women and children um, in, in homes. So you have to think about, you know, changes how we think about these colonial societies. You know, think about in fact that the governor of New England had as many as nine enslaved Indians um, of Massachusetts. And in, in a tiny, you know, in these tiny houses that people lived in that maybe only had, you know, one or two or three rooms. Um, and we'd also have had uh, English servants living in them. So, John, you asked a little bit about this, I, I, the confusion about status of, of Indians. So the, the thing is, because the English colonies were, or colonists in America were the ones who were engaging in enslavement and really thinking and, and kind of creating the system, they did it uh, in piecemeal over time. And uh, what you ended up with is different sets of regulations in different English colonies, um, depending on what populations they were engaged in enslaving and, 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 the, and the kinds of activities that enslaved people engaged in and so on. 
So Massachusetts, I would argue, is actually the first place to, to pass a law of slavery and create a legal, as part of their legal code. So in the, um, which was being drafted during the Pequot War and emerged in, um, in print in 1641, just a couple of years after the war. And it said that the, it was legal to enslave people captured in a just war or people that were sold to English people. So already enslaved and brought and sold to you or people who sold themselves into slavery. But they also reserved the right of the state to, to condemn people to slavery as well. So those were the categories. Didn't say anything about race, didn't say anything about religion or ethnicity. It was just war, people who are already, who are sold to us or people who sell themselves, people whom the state says you can be a slave. So I think this law came into being in part to try to fix the status of these Pequot captives. Because in New England, there, are, there were people that were unfree. They were um, indentured servants, people that contracted their labor to work for a certain amount of time. But uh, contract servants, these indentured servants had um, limited uh, terms. Sorry, this was specified in the contract. And generally um, it was you know, between three and five years. Seven years was a long contract. Um, people could also be apprentices and people would contract their children. The children would go live with other people, be cared by them, disciplined by them and so on. But again, a contract sort of spelled out when that term would end, and, and also what the uh, what the person who controlled that labor um, owed to the indentured servant or the apprentice. Um, some English captives or Scott and Scots captives from the English Civil Wars were actually also sold as slaves in the Americas, in Barbados and New England. But again, these people were actually freed after a set amount of time. They weren't held for life. Their children weren't held after them. And once you emerge from indentured servitude, if you were a white English person, you basically enjoyed the same rights that your other English neighbors did. You could become a church member. You could become a landowner. Etc. It wasn't wasn't a mark of shame. It wasn't uh, you know it didn't limit the rest of your life opportunities. It was like it was a life passage. It was something you did as a young person. So in, in the short term, a lot of times the English use the word servant and slave almost interchangeably though to describe what's going on with these Indians and with Africans. And there was some kind of confusion in some ways about legally what the status of these people were. Uh, were they were they slaves for life? What about their children? Could their children be enslaved after them? Well, uh, in other English colonies, Barbados and Virginia, they, they gradually over time created a body of law that answered those questions. But the interesting thing about New England is it does not follow up and answer those questions. So what I see is almost is in every generation, uh, there is a kind of a battle over children and over the perpetuity and the inheritability of slavery. And if you um, had a claim to an Indian slave, you tried to claim their children. You, know, you tried to claim their labor for life, you tried to claim their children. If you were the, the, the enslaved person or, or someone who you know, thought about law and justice, you had problems with that. So, so you, you, we, we see kind of contestation as people who are slaveholders or sympathetic to them want to bring New England law in line with all the stuff that's going on in the other colonies and it really turns in, it's inheritable, it's permanent, et cetera. And, and that's a struggle that went on for you know, a century and a half in New England about how to, you know, what was the position of Indians in the slave system? 
Well, thank you for that. That was a wonderful uh, answer. And I think kind of answered some of my questions, but I would like to kind of get back to the Pequot War. And um, because one of the things that I really enjoyed about your argument is that you kind of make a very compelling case for warfare being strictly for this captivity and not so much land or extermination, but I mean, it was total war. And I guess you can talk, tell us about that, but uh, like it was really fought because there was a labor shortage and they needed these um, women and children, correct? Yeah, what I, what I did see, I did I did sort of um, looking at uh, labor histories and demographers. I was very ta- I was very struck by the fact that the 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 year the war started more or less was about was about seven years after the Massachusetts Bay colonists had arrived in Boston. So, right, so any people that they had who were servants, their terms would be up. So they were experiencing a labor shortage and they complained about it all the time. So that having Pequot, these Pequot um, captives, even though you know the numbers may seem small to us, uh, represented about um, I think fifteen to seventeen percent of the available of the available labor in Massachusetts. So they're, they're, they they were a significant um, part. So I, I think writing this book changed the way I think about almost all of these wars uh, that pitted um, colonists against Native Americans, because even if they started for, even if there's sort of a variety of interests surrounding when they start, uh, the, the, the way that these wars were fought was very much about the acquisition of captives. So you, you, you had um, you know, you had armies that were were formed by the colonists themselves, you know, and, and elite people were given commissions. So people that didn't even fight were often called majors and colonels and so on and so forth. And um, the, the recruitment material, the organization material of these colonial um, armies um, generally said you get to keep your, you get to keep the plunder. And captives were specifically mentioned in that list of plunder. So uh, the, the correspondence of people who were involved in the, in the Pequot War and later in King Philip's War in 1675, they, they, they talk about taking captives all the time. And Native American allies of the English in the Pequot War complained that, in fact, the English left the Narragansetts to fight the Pequots, to fight, to fight men. And they, the English were running around looking in places of refuge for women and children, you know, in, in, in the, what the English called the swamps, you know, which were just, you know, envir- places, environments that, that people could take shelter and be away from the battlefield. The English went to those places and specifically looked for these soft targets, these refugees and these captives. And people talked about, you know, I want what I want, you know, I want this and I want that and I want this person and I want this girl and so on. So uh, this becomes a pattern. In King Philip's War later, Massachusetts actually created a special regiment uh, they call them privateers, right? Privateers are are, are official pirates. They're sanctioned pirate. It's sanctioned piracy, but we—that's a term for the ocean. So this, they actually call these groups privateers. They're land privateers, and their job was to take slaves, to take captives, and they did very, very brutally, uh, engaged in incredibly brutal tactics along the way. So, uh, and they were exempted from other sorts of military service. This is like this was their job, I and mean, that gives you a sense of what's going on. And and all of the colonies officially did these giant distribution of captives. Um, you know, during during and after these wars, and then the numbers are quite large in King Philip's War. But when you think about you know the colonies themselves holding public auctions, you know on the on the auction block, on the anvil, 
selling people, groups of people in cobbles and in, you know, in chains. And um, also in Connecticut, they, in Rhode Island, they basically distributed them to towns and the towns sort of lined people up and gave, gave captives out or joined together on, to say, we're just going to sell all of these captives and take the money, you know? So, so you you had all these people kind of involved in these processes, uh, becoming slaveholders, having shares in the profits, but the, the government involvement is what's sort of striking about a kind of a striking feature of New England, really. Yeah, and maybe if we jump ahead to uh, King Philip's War and you could kind of give us an idea of how that conflict differed from the Pequot War um, and because you do call it a watershed moment in colonial Indian relations. And yeah, I mean, it, it, the, you know, you th the colonies in some ways initially were very dependent on Native Americans. Um, they, they engaged in diplomacy with them. They tried to convert them. You know, Native American children attended Harvard. Um, they corresponded with members of the Royal Society for Science in London. I mean, there's sort of there's a sort of hopeful utopian idea of what these relationships might be like, and and a, and a definitely a view of the Native Americans as human beings, um, of regular people that had diplomacy, intelligence, you know, capacity, and so on. There was a lot of interest in, you know, evangelizing them. In other words, Christianization being, uh, you know, and then you know, a common a common brotherhood. Of, of humanity. So how we go from that to feeling, you know, viewing them as targets of enslavement is, is a process that didn't happen overnight and it didn't happen for all New Englanders. So I'd say, uh, so what changes between the, the Pequot War sets, a, a, you know, an example and, and, you know, you know, sets a standard and creates a law that allows colonists to enslave people. Uh, so um, very quickly, the the language and the um, uh, that kind of deterrent diplomacy around uh, around Indian affairs. You know, there's always this threat of slavery looming, and the and, and the colonists, you know, held it over the local free, independent Native American groups. The the treaty that ended the Pequot War actually included a fugitive slave clause, and said that any Native nations that, that you know, shelter captives would themselves be enslaved. Uh, and, and, you know, Native Americans talk about how ordinary colonists would threaten them with enslavement if, you know, over, over a trespass or a horse, you know, a, a pig in the Native American cornfield or, or things like that, that, that the language of slavery and exportation to Barbados or, or, you know, wherever would be part of the sort of threats and part of the discussion. Um, in the years right before King Phelps War. Also, um, I start seeing a trend that really takes off after the war, and that is the sentencing of Native Americans to servitude by the courts. So, in the uh, in much of the 17th century, Native Americans were free and independent um, tribal nations. They were not subject to the colonies or to the English crown. They were their own people. They were independent. You know, if a colonist had a complaint, they couldn't really capture, police, take these people. That starts to change a little bit. And the colonies, uh, colonists are really trying to exert kind of jurisdiction of their courts and, you know, policing structures, which were community-based on uh, onto Native Americans. 
and really it's just before this next conflict that you, they start being able to do so. And, and often um, what these are situations are, are they're uh, levying of lots of fines and then threats of imprisonment or servitude if people don't pay up. A lot of times the targets are actually um, Native American chiefs or, or, the, or head, headmen and women. Um, they're really just trying to get land out of them and compensation. But you know, as these Native nations or individuals, if they can't pay, they they were sentenced to servitude. So King Philip's War, you know, even some of the groups that had sided with the English in these earlier conflicts um, are now or now you know ended up end up aligning against them. There's a couple of small nations that support the English in King Philip's War. And some Christianized Indians do, but sometimes the people, you know, these were people often whose whose families were being held hostage and who were themselves under kind of death threats if they didn't aid the English. So this war really, really engulfed much of southern New England and, and ended up kind of continuing on into the northern uh, northern frontiers of England and kind of set up another series of wars, partly because of English slaving and attacks on the privateers, attacks on groups that weren't involved in the war it meant that. New England ended up in kind of continued conflicts with uh, the Wabanaki Confederacy. But this war ended with, uh, King Philip's War ended with England, of New England colonies extending jurisdiction over most of the peoples of Southern New England and establishing um, really what were the first reservations. Um, Virginia established a similar sort of system, kind of not too in similar peer time periods as, um, as New England. So, you know, so in other words, kind of a recognition that that Native, American, that Native Americans controlled land in these very specific places, but but not anywhere else, and some restrictions on their movement. Um, but they also, the King Philip's War ended with the enslavement of about 35% to 40% of the surviving uh, Native Americans in New England. So, I mean, these wars were deadly, and then this, the survivor, many of the survivors were enslaved. So really, you know, New England Native American population had already dropped to almost, you know, only about nine. <laughs> 80 or 90% of its uh, numbers, you know, when English colonists started arriving and of that number, you know, almost 40% are enslaved. Some are exported um, reverse middle passage end up in, in the Mediterranean rowing galleys, English naval galleys as galley slaves. Uh, they end up in the Azores Islands, they end up in Jamaica and elsewhere, you know, doing the same work that enslaved people do. Um, one scholar has found that as many as 10% of the enslaved people in the Caribbean uh, were were Native Americans from all over, you know, from all over the Americas. But that's a huge number. Uh, we hadn't really known that before. Yeah, and that was one of the things that uh, fascinated me was that in the previous war, the Pequot War, um, it was to get labor. And then during King Philip's War, they had too many people. And then they became afraid of what that meant. So it started sending them away and kind of like the, they didn't want the government involved, but then the government had to do regulations. And I guess um, this would be a good way to kind of transition into how uh, codification of this slavery started mm -hmm. to take hold and Right. Well, I think there's some people are afraid of the are there. Some people are afraid of enslaving these folks they've just been fighting against. But other people are actually there's still most of the Indians enslaved, even in King Philip's War, end up end up as laborers within New England. Um, so, uh, 
So what starts changing is that the numbers of enslaved Africans start rising somewhat. And I mean, the numbers are still small and Native American uh, slaves still outnumber African slaves. But that, that number starts to tip a little bit. This is happening in all of the colonies, even in Virginia, you know, the numbers of enslaved Africans were small and they were concentrated. The wealthiest of the wealthy had even had access to African slaves. So another reason for Indian slavery is because it's, you know, for New Englanders, they're, they're just, they're much less expensive. They're available. Um, this, you know, ordinary people could afford to uh, engage in that traffic. Whereas for African enslaved Africans, this, the supply is just much smaller. So New England merchants are starting to get involved in the trade, starting to make the, make uh, African slaves more, more available. And so, um, so, uh, you know, what, one of the effects of this is that the New England colonies did pass laws that looked like laws passed in other English colonies um, that we would, we would define as slave codes. Um, so these were, were about, more about control, policing, and behavior. So they, you know, prevented enslaved people from, you know, they said night walking for being around at night, often required passes for using transportation or being out and about, um, you know, to, to explain your business and so on. Um, from prevent, prevented people from gathering, prevented people from bearing arms, changed their tax status from that of people to animals, objects. So they became pers taxes, personal property or livestock, um, all these things dehumanizing, um, creating special courts for um, uh, to rule on cases involving um, enslaved people. But the thing about these laws is they actually specifically included Indian slaves and servants. So, so here's now the first time where this whole thing is getting racialized. And English servants, are, none of these laws apply to them, or white servants. So you've got all of a sudden Indian and African slaves and servants. This was the language. So now servitude for Native Americans and Africans, even if that term is used, they're now in a completely different category, a completely different legal category, and you know, governed by these, these slave codes to a certain extent. And yet still, the status of the children, and the, by this is also includes the children of, of enslaved Africans, because the, there's no law that says their children are automatically enslaved. What's out there is practice. What's out there is What's going, on, what's going on in other colonies. And that's what slaveholders asserted to claim the children of Africans as well as Indians. But it, this is still not clearly um, addressed in law. So one of the interesting things is, uh, is just you start seeing hints of, of debate over these issues in um, diaries and letters. So the legal records don't show debate. They just show the outcomes in this period. There's no roll calls. There's not, there's not like, you know, C-SPAN, you know, we can't see what people are saying. So, but um, some people who actually cared and were interested reveal what's going on. And there's sort of titanic debates over this taxing people as, as you know, livestock. Uh, and and as as objects and property. I mean, so everybody knows what these laws mean, and they're dehumanizing. And their efforts to, to separate out Indians and Africans. And same thing with uh, laws about marriage and racial intermarriage. Uh, again, trying to separate out Indians or or protesting that it's just a dehumanizing and inhuman thing, and people have a right to be married. So the funny thing is in New England is that people did retain a right to marry each other, if not to engage in interracial uh, marriage. But that's still uh, you know, that's still such a rebuke to slavery. Once you've allowed people to, to have a, even a Christian marriage, how can you separate this couple? You know, how can you do these things that, that happens in slavery? And enslaved people retain the right to testify in court in 
um, New England, both uh, African and Native American. And that's also very exceptional in slave societies, you know, where, where usually people lose their, their right to testify. Free Black people in Ohio didn't have the right to testify in court after, you know, in the 19th, for the first really third of the 19th century, but they did in New England in this colonial period. So uh, this gives you a sense of how we see these regional differences emerging in slavery. And I, I think it's because Native Americans were the bulk of the enslaved and that the laws were formed around them. And then there's always some sort of, there's a, a free Native American community that's a, re, a rebuke to slavery and whose presence suggests that slavery is not normal and not, you know, not divinely inspired and so on. So that there's a, you know, there's always a kind of a counter argument about enslavement. So in fact, I, I see uh, people start bringing cases, freedom cases, uh, based on Native American ancestry in the 18th century. And sometimes juries are very, very sympathetic to these cases. Um, and at the same time, slaveholders are trying to change the law to allow the permanence and inheritability of slavery. And, and behind the scenes, there are, are very intense debates about that as well. So the statute doesn't change. Practice still means that the burden was on the enslaved person to get out of slavery. People are start being um, sentenced to servitude in much higher numbers. And once these people were servants, the chances of them being just slaveholders just claiming these people as slaves or claiming their children after them, even though they're supposed to be only enslaved for a term, was very high. Well, that's perfect. And I think um, that's probably a good place to leave it. Um, I know the book doesn't go into uh, post you know, the, the American experiment, but uh, what does, do you know what happens to these Indian slaves once the colonies become the uh, states? Well, they're kind of, uh, I, I, you know, there's not a clear endpoint. Just as the endpoint of slavery in New England is is very is very ill-defined. So, you know, we often demonize the South and, you know, so so one one of the reasons I think the story of Indian slavery kind of uh, disappeared a little bit was the Civil War and and the sort of the sorting of the the good North and the bad South and the anti you know this notion of an anti-slavery North and so on um, that kind of wiped the slate clean. So I think that for um, the, the funny thing though is um, the New England states were very slow to end slavery uh and they did so in a pretty gradualist way if they did so at all and and in essentially in massachusetts it wasn't a statute but were, were in fact court cases freedom suits uh, one one of which actually used the language of the Ma new massachusetts constitution to challenge slavery so the state supreme court said well gosh we say all men are created equal so you know that is exactly that language became the the, the basis of a freedom suit that succeeded. But but the state legislature didn't run out and, and pass a law abolishing slavery or let everybody know. So you, you still had a kind of very weird, where, where people in rural areas were still being held as slaves and they maybe didn't know, and, or, or you know the community wasn't really let, ready to let them go. Whereas during the revolution itself, there are other cases in which People just walked away from slavery during the revolution, even before this case, just because of the, you know, the chaos and because, you know, communities had kind of decided that it was wrong and it was in violation of the American ideals. 
Um, so you had a mishmash in which some people got their freedom, but others didn't. And there was a lack of action in some ways to make it clear. And Connecticut didn't formally abolish slavery, I think, until 1840. 1840. It's crazy. So you do have that. The, there were Indians in what is what was thought to be the, uh, the Black uh, Slave Regiment in Rhode Island actually had Native Americans. So I think what happens is that the you know enslaved Native American population kind of gets um, subsumed into a, you know, Africanized to a certain extent. And people just assume that there's a kind of Africanization of slavery in, in people's minds and in, in, you know, in history writing that we, we have ignored how racially diverse it was. So that they, you know, but where, whereas these people in their own genealogies were very aware of their Native American heritage. And then it also, you know, turns up in these freedom suits and so on. Thanks for listening to Unpacking 1619. For more information on Heights Library 1619 Project Discussion Group, or to check out more interviews with scholars, please visit heightslibrary.org. See you next episode, wherever you listen to podcasts.